Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 43, Dominion Over All. In this episode, the reign of King Kakhaure Senusaret III continues and a literary golden age begins to flourish. We visit with some rural communities and witness the king's first forays into military endeavors. The year is now 1875 BCE, approximately. It is the fifth year in the reign of Kakaure Senusaret III, the fifth ruler of Dynasty 12 and one of Egypt's most famous kings. In his first few years, Kakaure initiated no less than two major building projects in the form of a pyramid at Tashur in the north and a hidden tomb in the south at Abydos. Two lands, two tombs, one king. While this was going on, the social demographic of Egypt was shifting slightly. Populations were on the move from distant rural communities towards the royal centres at Ichitawi and Lahun. Lahun, in particular, is quite important for this period. After Senusaret II decided to build his pyramid there, the population seems to have increased rapidly. We know this because the cemeteries excavated nearby show a sudden increase in activity during the 12th dynasty. After a long gap since the end of the Old Kingdom, the site suddenly becomes rich with burials of wealthy and non-wealthy persons. The most important region near Lahun is known today as Haraga, a desert outcropping to the north of Lahun itself, surrounded on three sides by cultivation and covered pretty smoothly with sand. Haraga escaped local and international attention right up until 1912. It was discovered rather unexpectedly when Reginald Engelbach conducted an informal survey. He suspected that there might be a few graves in the region, but did not have much confidence in finding anything. Imagine his surprise when Engelbach discovered over 800 graves in just a few short weeks. The burials just kept coming up, ranging all across the earliest ages of Egyptian history and culminating in an immense concentration of 12th and 13th dynasty graves. He safely identified and excavated at least 116 women and 124 males, giving us a nice cross-section of human society in this little region of the world. The graves at Haraga are often densely packed together, and a few held more than one body. It seems that space became quite limited quite quickly, suggesting a period of intense activity over one or two generations which then cooled off as the 12th dynasty transitioned into the 13th. In fact, graves from the 12th dynasty outnumber earlier and later ones by almost 2 to 1, suggesting that the reigns of Senusaret II and Senusaret III were the pinnacle of occupation here. Occupation then began to decline 
after royal attention shifted to other locations, and the site's population slowly receded as families followed the government to other areas. Within a single season of fieldwork, during 1913, the site of Haraga catapulted itself into the history books, and became one of the major sources for understanding society and burial customs during the 12th dynasty. Today, Haraga is divided among 13 cemeteries, of which more than half are Middle Kingdom. Two cemeteries come from the pre-dynastic, four from the Old Kingdom and First Intermediate period, and seven from the 12th dynasty. So it's pretty clear there was a population boom around the time that Senusaret II decided Lahun would be the site of his pyramid. By the time Kakaore Senusaret III was on the throne, the area was growing rapidly. Tombs were cut deep into the bedrock, where small shafts would lead down to corridors and burial chambers, hidden from the shifting sands above. Unfortunately, many of the wealthier tombs were already robbed long ago. But enough survived that a lovely collection of funerary goods survives today. A group of these items was put up for auction in 2014, but fortunately, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York stepped in and bought them privately to preserve and display in its own collection. Among the hundreds of graves at Haraga, which ranged from wealthy shaft tombs to simple pits dug for poorer individuals, the wealthy and the powerful were able to erect small mud-brick chapels. Within these chapels, which have now been erased by three and a half millennia of desert wind, they erected stone stelae, commemorating their lives. Stelae of the 12th dynasty are very common by Egyptian standards, and they range in quality from simple slabs of stone with hand-drawn ink writing, to elaborately carved and decorated blocks with finely chiseled hieroglyphs. Many of the items found at Lahun belonged to government officials, and may have been produced at a single stelae workshop that may have existed at Saqqara or Echitawi. Beautiful stelae show evidence of being produced by a single group. They bear the same design, with small variations depending on the owner. The stela of Saat Sobek and Senwazret, for instance, shows the couple standing to either side of a pile of offerings. The same image appears for Meket and her daughter, Dedet, with two women on either side. The sailor, Khermer Neket, and his spouse, Iuseni, have a stela of the same design. Likewise, one finds Dedet and her daughter, Nefret, in the same positions. Finally, Senwazret, son of Dedet, and his spouse, Sat Hathor, are depicted together on a stela of the same design. These pairs all stand atop a gateway, on which are carved two Wedjat eyes. The Wedjat, or Eye of Horus, is a famous Egyptian symbol, used in protective amulets and with a rich historical background. In the 12th dynasty, the Wedjat begins to show up in pairs carved on stelae and stone reliefs. And when you have so many stelae, bearing a nearly identical design, it suggests one of two things. Either there was a small fashion sweeping the country, which has only survived in a few pieces of evidence, or these images of a pair of individuals standing to either side of a pile of offerings were produced by the same artist or group of artists working together 
at a single workshop. I'm willing to put money on the second option. The wedge art eyes are common to most stelae from this period, but the very specific design of these couples suggests a single place of manufacture. Now if we could only identify the exact location of this workshop, archaeologists would be able to reconstruct the processes which supported and produced the Egyptian stelae industry. That would be quite a treat. Other stelae of the period show the variety in forms that could be used by wealthy Egyptians. A stela of Hekaib, for instance, shows the official standing next to his mother and father. The stela of Inpi shows him seated before a table of offerings. Diverse little images that might, and I have to stress the might, have been specific to different workshops. I am purely speculating here, but it's not inconceivable that workshops had their own particular designs. Perhaps workshop A made couples standing before piles of offerings, while workshop B produced images of the owner next to their parents. It's not out of the question, and it would explain why we have a diverse range of images, but also evidence for some designs being produced by single groups. Anyway, back to the Third. By now, we have reached year 8 of his reign, being approximately 1872 BCE. Having put his domestic affairs in order, Kakaure decided that the time had come to prove his mettle in the traditional manner. That is, he wanted a war. The target was Nubia, that traditional punching bag of Egyptian rulers. Of course, the region of Lower Nubia, which reaches from the first cataract of the Nile down to the second, was already pacified, occupied by fortresses, and carefully guarded. But beyond the second cataract, the tribes and communities of Nubia still lived beyond formal Egyptian power, and might have been connected to the Yam kingdom of Kush. To prove to his subjects that he was a vigorous king in the traditional warrior-leader sense, Sinusaret pushed southward beyond the fortresses and the second cataract. He raided villages, extorted the locals for tribute, and took gold from the mines in the eastern desert. Then his army turned around. The king returned without expanding Egyptian territory beyond the second cataract, merely taking tribute where he could and asserting his authority as far south as was reasonable. You may ask yourself, at this point, after centuries of raiding, why not just conquer the whole country and be done with it? Well, fair enough. The 12th dynasty rulers probably could have conquered most of Nubia. Certainly, they could have reduced its autonomy so greatly that it became an unofficial satellite of Egypt, if nothing else. But the further past the second cataract that the army pushed, the more and more territory had to be guarded. More supplies had to be shipped for the construction and provisioning of new fortresses. More soldiers had to be sent down. More land had to be found for their families. More overseers and scribes were needed to manage affairs. More shrines were needed for the fortresses and those shrines would require more priests. Essentially, conquest added a tremendous headache to the government, which increased exponentially the further south they went. And at the end of the day, the Nubians were not yet a threat, no matter how nicely Kush and Kerma were developing. So for Kakaure Sinusaret III, the issue was a pretty simple one. Don't change the existing state of affairs, 
simply go into Nubia, earn your stripes, so to speak, and return with as much portable wealth as possible. In that sense, it was a success. In subsequent campaigns, the king would achieve more significant military objectives, but his first campaign was a simple one. Perhaps he was just testing his mettle as king, or perhaps he had other affairs at home to deal with. Either way, Sanusaret's preoccupation with military affairs was generally minimal compared with his work in Egypt itself. When he returned to the palace, he began to take thought for what his newly acquired wealth could be used. He settled on the cult of Osiris at Abydos. With his royal tomb underway, the king now required that his noblemen also make appropriate offerings and additions to the great god. Our witness for this process is a man named Iker Nefret, who at the age of 26, well into adulthood by ancient standards, was ordered to oversee projects at Abydos itself. He recorded his adventures on a stone stealer, set up in the Abydos cemetery. It is written from the perspective of the king, speaking to Iker Nefret, and the personal pronouns refer to Senusaret himself. Quote, my majesty commands that you, Ikonephret, shall be sent upriver to Abydos to make monuments for my father Osiris, the foremost of the westerners, to adorn his secret place with the gold which he caused my majesty to bring from Upper Nubia in victory and triumph. You shall do this, satisfying my father Osiris, since my majesty sends thee, my heart being certain of your doing everything according to the desires of my majesty. Thou hast been brought up in the teachings of my majesty, and the sole teaching of my palace. My majesty appointed thee while you were a young man of twenty-six. My majesty has done this, because I have seen you to be one who is excellent in character, and sufficient in speech. My majesty sends thee to do this, since I have recognized that no one doing it possesses your good qualities. End quote. The steel of Ikernefret is one of our best sources for the practices at Abydos during the Middle Kingdom, some of which we recounted in episode 40. Now, instead of emphasizing the cult rituals and celebrations, we can talk about how Ikernefret came to be at Abydos, and what his words tell us of wealthy, noble society in the mid-12th dynasty. Ikernefret was selected for the project because of his good character and because he had been raised in the quote-unquote teachings of the palace. These teachings, with a capital T, are a difficult concept to pin down. But what we know of them tells us a great deal of the political climate under 12th dynasty rulers, and Kakaure in particular. The question is, what was the essence of these teachings? The stealer talks about them, but doesn't explain them. For Ikerneferet, it was simply common knowledge not something that needed to be explained. For us, it's a bit of a puzzle. Fortunately, we possess other texts that explain in more detail what the prevailing concepts of ethical behaviour really entailed. There are two documents from this period that really exemplify what Kakaure's teachings might have involved. These are the Loyalist Instructions of Sehetep Ibre and the Teaching of a Man for His Son, Let's look at the loyalist instructions first. The oldest physical source for this text comes from Abydos, where Sehetep Ibre recorded the text on a stela, 
during the reign of Kakaure's successor, Amenemhat III. The instructions themselves come from either the reign of Kakaure or slightly earlier. There is some debate between Egyptological commentators. I won't bore you with the details. Suffice to say, we only know that the reign of Senusaret III is the latest point at which the text could have been composed. Anyway, let's get into the meat of the text. It is a pretty one. Quote, Let me say what is great. May you listen, as I cause you to know the manner of eternity, a matter of living in Ma'at, of proceeding to revered status. Praise the king within your bodies. Embrace his majesty in your hearts. Spread awe of him every day. Create rejoicing for him at every moment. He is the insight into what is in hearts. His eyes probe every body. He is the sun under whose leadership people live. Whoever is under his light will be great in wealth. He is the sun by whose rays people see. He is the one who brightens the two lands more than the sun disk. End quote. I like the intro of this tale. It reminds me of a parent taking their child on their knee and saying, Today, I teach you the secret of getting through life with dignity and respect. It strikes a nice balance of familiarity and concern for the wider society. Some things never change. Hey everybody, an old man's talking. <laughs> the second part, meanwhile, reminds me a bit more of evangelical Christian sermons, for better or worse. It's got an interesting focus on the idea of the king as an omnipresent force, always here within one's heart. In this sense, it is really heavily dependent on the divine symbolism that had always been a feature of Egyptian kingship. Only, it takes it to a new level. It moves the king from just a semi-divine being protecting the cosmos to one who is imminent, who is present within a person, within nature itself, he is the sun god in his lifetime, and connected with a lesser-known form of ray called the Aten. The Aten is the light of the sun, and the glowing ball of fire that you see in the sky. It first appears in the mid-fifth dynasty, and slowly becomes more and more noteworthy, until it reaches real significance in the late 18th dynasty. It is an interesting notion that I will return to next episode. The loyalist instruction continues, moving on to more specific guidelines. Quote, Fight on in the king's name, cleanse in his life, avoid the instant of idleness. The servant of the king will have revered status, but there can be no tomb for one who rebels against his majesty. His corpse will be something cast into the water. Enter the land by the gift of the king, content in the place of eternity with the shrine of your children bearing your love, and your heirs established in your possessions. Copy my form, do not neglect my words, put into effect the rule that I have drawn up. You will be praising this for years. Faithfulness to my words assures success. End quote. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So we have something of the form of Kakaore's philosophical ideals. The teachings that disseminated throughout the court during the middle of the 12th dynasty. Whether these were invented by the king is purely a matter of speculation, but certainly such ideals spread far and wide in the wealthier parts of Egyptian society. These ideals were simple, hard work, obedience to higher authorities, and proper veneration and submission to the king. These characteristics of obedience and hard work are carried over quite nicely in The Teaching of a Man for His Son, with an extra dash of good manners and social niceties. Quote, Have character without exaggerating it. For a sensible man, idleness does not happen. Silence is precise, the leveller of the arm. The heart that does what is told is the effective one. Rejection of words leads to violence. Whoever enters into words opens the way for hearing. Interpret words without humiliating. A mean phrase slights its sayer. End quote. I really like this little verse, particularly its emphasis on taking care to understand words properly. In a world where communication is instantaneous, I often find myself speaking without properly thinking, and I do it all too often. But when I slow down, take the care to understand a person's true meaning, not the meaning that I instinctively leap to, then communication flows more truly and more effectively. The author of this teaching understood this notion, and passed it on to his readers as fatherly advice, complemented by the notion that a mean phrase slights its sayer. This is another way of saying, your words reveal your heart, and that cruel or hurtful speech suggests a cruel or hurtful heart. The author continues, quote, Do not let your heart stray from God. Praise the king. May you love him as a worker. He makes radiant by the giving of his powers. But whoever neglects him is deprived of a foundation. He is greater than a million men for the one he has favoured. He is the shield for the one who makes him content. It is to the one he has loved that he gives his heart. Guard against speaking out and vexing him. End quote. Like so many Egyptian instructions, the author is very concerned with the power of speech and how to govern one's tongue. But most importantly, he is very concerned with the idea of angering or bothering the king. It is this sense of concern, almost fear, that leads some historians to view Senusaret III as a severe, almost tyrannical ruler. They see this in such little references to public obedience and the solemn faces of the king's statues, and the fact that he was later proclaimed as a living god. And perhaps these historians are right, but I think that the image we get from these texts is somewhat disproportionate. What I mean is, we have more written documents from this general period than many other eras of Egyptian history. This means that they represent an unusually large proportion of the available philosophical writing and any image we get from them is likely to distort our overall perception of ancient Egyptian court life. Can we really accuse Senusaret III of being unusually authoritarian on the basis of a few writings produced by literate individuals who were close to the royal power? 
is it really surprising that noblemen or courtiers are concerned with their image in the king's eyes? No court would admit these as anything but circumstantial evidence, so let's not damn the king on the basis of a few scattered texts. Now, before you think I'm leading the cheerleader squad for Sinuseret III, I will say that his court was probably not the most carefree ever seen in Egypt. That's not necessarily a bad thing, of course. The king was proactive in rule, and seems to have expected others to follow suit. When managed properly, that can be one of monarchy's greatest strengths. So, the period of Kakaori's reign is marked by the increased visibility of loyalty to the king, obedience to his ideals, and respect for his sentiments. This might have been somewhat overbearing, but I don't put much stock in that. At the end of the day, most Egyptian kings were authoritarians. And when we have a slightly distorted image like this, it's more because of the relatively large number of writings that survive than any truth to the accusation. What we can say with some confidence is that these texts are the first inklings of a literary golden age that is beginning to dawn in the reign of Kakaore. This trend will pick up speed and lead to some of Egypt's most enduring literary tales. Next time, we will travel abroad in a fantasy known as the Shipwrecked Sailor, one of Egypt's most well-known stories, and the bane of undergraduate language students everywhere. The History of Egypt podcast is supported by you, the listeners. If you are enjoying the show, consider leaving a review on your podcasting app of choice. If you would like to support the show directly and help me pay for research materials and food, consider signing up to my Patreon. Patreon subscribers get access to special perks like early episode releases, supplementary notes and photo materials, early or exclusive access to YouTube videos, and an ad-free experience. For as little as five US dollars per month, you can enjoy the special edition of the podcast. If you are interested, follow the link in the episode description, or go to patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Egypt podcast. Thank you for listening. May the great gods bless your week. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.